fairways are completely 100% overrated. Uh, for anyone that's you know going out on their scorecard and tracking greens and regulation, fairways hit, and number of putts, stop. And welcome back. Welcome aboard the Par Train. I'm one of your co-hosts, Evan Singer. I got my main man, partner in crime, Matt Cermak with me. What's up, Evan? It's great to be back. What a great episode we just had. It really is. We are pumped. If Before we get to this episode, in case you guys are new, if your golf game's off the rails, you're sick of riding that shrug bus, you come to the right place. We help frustrated golfers enjoy the ride again because if you can smile through bad golf, you can smile through anything. Okay? We've proven it. Now, we're essentially, we unpack the mental game with anyone from a PJ Tour Pro to a best-selling author to help you finally get back on track. This episode with Lou Stagner is a really good one. We went a little bit longer than we normally yeah. do. And before we get to... It, though. He wanted a deep dive. He wanted a deep dive, and that's what we gave him. Now, let me give people a, a little bit of context before we talk about our favorite um, partner. People have been asking us in the DMs a lot lately. I've seen a trend. People are like, hey, I've been struggling with a big miss off the tee. Do you have an episode for this? Hey, I've been struggling. I don't really have a routine. I don't know where to start. You have an episode just on routines. And I realized we talk about this stuff a lot in various episodes, but there's not one particular one on these very popular topics that maybe we've done. So what we're doing is we're listening. That's the power of the DMs. You tell us stuff that you're looking for and that you want. More times than not, we'll probably do it. So what we're now doing, Serm, is we're bringing back some of our favorite guests Yep. And we're bringing them back to deep dive on a particular topic. And Lou Stagner, Mr. Statistician himself, you know him on Twitter for all the great data that separates tour pros from us, from a 10 to a 5 to a 0. At Lou Stagner on Twitter, great follow. He came back and we did a deep dive on routines, strategy, putting, the differences between different handicaps and how that reflects in strategy and routines. I thought it was really good. Yeah, we deep we do a deep dive in strokes gained, right? I mean, you guys, you got to listen to this from a zero to a five, from a he five challenged to a ten, right? It challenged us, and we're really looking at you know as it relates to around the greens, approach, irons, and off the tee, and the the results and the stats are always fascinating. Um, Lou's great, and uh, it's fun to hear Lou talk about his game. He's a really good player. He's a th- we're call- he says he's a three handicap. He loves to practice. Um, so he's really got a lot of great things to talk about as related to his swing and his putting. He's a great putter, never been the best ball striker, but how he works and how he thinks mm-hmm. and the importance just- of, of getting a swing instructor too. We talk about that. So lose the best. I mean, it's just a thrill to have him back on and really do, like we said, a deep dive, deep dive for you guys to get more into a specific topic. And he's a three handicap and he says he hates his swing, which I always yeah. love hearing because it I think it makes everybody feel a little bit better. Nobody necessarily loves their swing. Nobody um, loves their voice and nobody loves their swing, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we definitely don't love our voice. We it's hard right. to listen to us sometimes, you know? But, but everyone's like that. <laughs> Everyone feels that way. So before we get to this episode with Lou, we just have to say that our friends at Roback are doing what they do best in the summer, which is they're releasing new polo designs every week. Right now they just dropped a new baseball line. Yeah. Which as a former baseball guy. Is there going to be Cardinals or just not enough demand? It's mostly Cubs. I, I, that's what I'm saying. Well, you know, the Cardinals kind of <laughs> suck. Yeah, I don't know what the, what the city of St. Louis is doing right now. I mean, there's nothing to cheer for. Are you a Dodgers um, fan yet? Wow. No, no. But the MLS team is solid. So what? Okay. 
<laughs> what Roback does is they release new designs every week. So in the summer, you got to get yourself a new polo. You got to get yourself a hoodie, some shorts. The everyday shorts are my favorite. I'm wearing them right now. I wear them literally every day. But that's why they call them everyday shorts because I literally exactly wear them every they day. Call them. They're for everything. Yeah. So rowback.com, enter the code train, get yourself something new. You deserve it. If the code doesn't work, it probably means you've used it before. So if you have to get creative and borrow your wife's email, do whatever you have to do. Just do it, guys. Roback hasn't yelled at us yet for saying that. So I'm going to keep saying it. So, you know, just you didn't hear it from us, but you heard it wow. from somewhere. Should we get to this episode with Lou? I think they're in for a real treat. Yeah. I mean, we kind of just did have. Let's get to it. Okay. <laughs> One of our favorite guests is back. Sir Mac, we love guests returns. We can go deep. This is Lou true. Stagner, welcome aboard the train. My man, we're happy to have you back on board. What's up, Lou? Hey, thanks for having me back, guys. Choo choo. It's good to be back. It's so crazy that this all started from my bachelor party. Remember that, Sir Mac? In oh, Cabo? Yeah, 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 yeah. My buddy Bird was like, dude, you got to have Lou on your podcast. And I messaged you at the table <laughs> the first night of my bachelor party. It's so yes, funny. I remember that. Yeah, it was it was pretty wild. Uh, it was a good, good story. And yeah, I think and here your we bachelor are. party was a lot of fun from what it was. I remember you told me. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Highly recommend Cabo and La Quivera as a great golf option for all levels. It was like the ideal round if you're going to pay some money for a golf round you might as well get comfort stations free food and free booze and amazing ocean views so highly recommend it and anytime um, any uh everyone comes back alive from an out of the country bachelor party it's a win regardless sure. it's a complete win for sure so lou we're going to dive into routines and a lot of great data-driven stuff as you always do but first not to start on a sour note but i think it's actually a huge opportunity here yeah. is you just told us off air the story around how you hurt your ankle and yeah. you've been out of commission. You said this is the longest you haven't played golf since you started playing golf. Now, Lou, there's a lot of people out there that's playing a lot of golf and not enjoying themselves. So what newfound perspective have you gotten from not being able to play that maybe we can share with our listeners before we dive into the topic today? I absolutely miss it like crazy, number one. Mm -hmm. So to not be able even to hit balls, like I'm typically hitting balls multiple times a week um, you know, out in my garage at the moment. And not even being able to do that is uh, you don't realize how much you completely miss it until you can't do it anymore. You know, I've gone longer stretches where I haven't played. But before we got on air, this is the least amount of golf that I've played during the course of a season leading up until this point, I've been incredibly busy leading up until several weeks ago uh, with things going on, coaching at Princeton. We made it to the regionals this year. So the season went a little bit longer. I had some other things going on that just kept me incredibly busy. And by the time all of that was winding down, I was ready to go full tilt on golf. Boom, hurt the ankle. And so I've been on the shelf and, and will be on the shelf for several more weeks until I'm back to hundred percent and, you know, enjoy every round. I, I tweet this out every once in a while, but, you know, really seriously enjoy every round. At some point you're, you're going to play your last round. You may know when it's coming. You may not know when it's coming. So enjoy every chance you get out there. It doesn't really matter how you play. I mean, we all want to play well, but once you can't do it anymore, you realize how much you enjoy doing it. 
But Lou, what about your short game? What about your putting? Is he, um, are you starting yeah, to get dead up inside right of now? 10 feet? Uh, like, I, unfortunately, unfortunately for me, I'm a horrific ball striker. I've always had a bad swing. I've always been a sketchy ball striker. Mm. Um, and I've always had uh, a decent short game, but I've been a fantastic putter. For, Free handicap okay. too. Yeah, for 20 plus years, I've been a fantastic putter. I, I spent a lot of time on putting uh, when I first started playing golf. And then as I got a little bit better, I spent even more time on putting. Back then, we we said drive for show, putt for dough. And I spent way too much time trying to putt for dough, and my swing has suffered for it. So could I spend some time putting? I could, but that's not the part that I need any work You're on. in a good place with the putting. I'm in a good place there. many people can say that? So that yeah. is... Yeah. That's good. It's funny, Lou. I I jammed my finger at the beach throwing a football round on July 4th. And the first thing I thought was, oh no, this better not be bad so that I it impacts my ability to play in a couple of days. So yeah. did that go through your mind as soon as you hurt your ankle? Legitimately, like like when I was in the emergency room, I was texting some buddies and I'm like, <laughs> man, my so you know, it was colorful comments, but my season's over. It's done. It's mm. and they actually misdiagnosed me in the emergency room. The doctor came in and he's like, "You got a fracture. It's broken." Um, and it ended up not being broken, just a you know kind of a nasty sprain. Um, and I, when he came in and told me that, I went, "Oh no, like that's Man. not good." So we're coming back. Just coming back. What finger did you hurt? Which one? My right ring finger, but we're good to go. It was only okay. like a day. didn't even get that swollen. And I was literally, yeah. I went like this. I was like, how important is this? I was like, it's pretty important. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It the where, And it probably would be uncomfortable too, the way that it sits. Yeah, for sure. You know, against the other hand, like you probably wouldn't be able to play without it. Yeah. Well, gl- glad you're better. We're Yeah, we're better. And it's a good reminder to everyone that you never know. We take it for granted when you can do it. But what's interesting, Lou, we were talking about this a little off air. I want to give people a little context where historically we kind of let the interviews guide where we go, right? And I've been getting more and more requests from our listeners to say, hey, I'm really struggling to find a routine or I'm really struggling with a big miss off the tee. Do you guys have a dedicated episode for this? And we mentioned those things in a lot of different episodes, but we don't have dedicated episodes for a lot of these. And so- we're going to ask our some of our favorite guests to come back. We're going to do a big miss off the tee with Ward Jarvis, Brennan Todd's mental coach, who just had a sure. great week at John Deere yeah. this week as well. So that'll come after this episode, I believe. But this, I think, was a great opportunity to maybe leverage some data to understand what separates certain players. And then let's dive into some routines that we think can help you get there, right? Because everyone that talks about a routine, it's with a goal in mind, but you got to understand how you want to, what you want to get to in order to get there. So the first question I want to ask you about this, Lou, is how would you even define a routine in golf? And what is the most important routine to have? Are there some that are more important than others? Or how do you think about this concept of routines? Well, I think the one way that I think about it, and I think this is the thing that a lot of people struggle with when they think routine, they think pre-shot routine, they then go to, I need to do certain things before I hit the golf ball. 
and they're going through this checklist in their mind and they have the list of these eight things that they need to do and they're checking. You can see their brain working on this checklist as they're going through and getting ready to hit a golf ball. I need to stand behind. I need to you know, hold my club up and, and pick the target. I need to take three steps in and turn to the side. I need to take two waggles and I, I need to take my halfway practice. They're going through this checklist. That's not what a routine should be. You shouldn't be checking things off your box as you go. Think of a routine like when you drive a car. When you get into the car to drive somewhere, do you say, I'm going to reach over with my right hand and grab the seatbelt and click it in and then hit the button to turn it on and press, you know, my left foot goes down. You're not doing any checklist. You're just doing it. And when you're out driving, you're not going through checklists. You're just driving. And that to me would be the goal of trying to get to an effective routine in golf where you're not going through and having a list of eight things that you're checking a box as you go. Because I don't think that that gets you prepared in a way that you're going to perform at your best and highest level. So Lou, you know, that's funny. Evan and I were talking about this before you jumped on. There's really two, two parts to the routine. And I think you just covered the first one, really the physical part, the part that everybody's trying to repeat, right? I might take three practice swings. Evan might take one. I might take two waggles. He might take one, whatever it is, you got to do it. I believe maybe you don't, but I believe you got to do the same every time. But I think what you're getting at is you can't be thinking about your routine. It's got to like anything. It's like a it's like shooting a free throw. You got to develop a routine by practicing it. So being on the range, simulating play and finding your routine, whatever works. And you do it enough. It should just come out on the golf course and happen. So I just wanted to get your thoughts there. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And I, I think routine should be getting you to the point where, in my opinion, they should be quicker, not slower. They should be more athletic and reacting than painstakingly slow and trying to get everything set so you can pull the trigger. You know, if I were to, if we were in person right now and I threw a, threw something at you, you just reach up and you'd catch it, right? You wouldn't right. think about anything else. You just, you're reacting to something. And to me, that's the goal of being able to perform at a high level is reacting. And there was, I forget who did it, but it was over on the European tour. They did some work on length of pre-shot routine. I don't know if you guys have seen this one. No. Um, so they did. They did some. They did a study on the length of pre-shot routine, uh, and it wasn't just if you take eight seconds, you're going to increase your chances of hitting a good golf shot. They compared everybody to themselves. So they would get enough shots on you and they would time every single one of your routines and they would measure all your outcomes and then they would compare you to you and they would say, okay, these were all your slow routines. How did those shots look? These were all your really fast routines. How did those shots look? These are the ones in the middle. How did those shots look? And the faster, if you play faster than you typically do, you perform better than you typically do. If you play slower than you typically do, you're going to perform worse than you typically do. So there, it was really interesting, um, and I, I apologize, I don't remember who did it, but it was really interesting to take a look at that, and I think that aligns with the, you know, the notion of being athletic and reacting to a target, as opposed to going through a checklist of physical movements or physical positions that you're trying to hit. Now, yeah, I, I love that. On the yeah. notion of a checklist, Lou, 
because obviously anything new will require some conscious thought at first. And as you do it more, it'll become more of autopilot to your point. But my question is to that checklist, are you saying the negative side or the detrimental side of that is purely the length or the amount of things that someone has in their pre-shot routine? I want to dig into that a little bit just to make sure I'm clear. Yeah, I think it's just the notion of going through items on a list um, mm. and saying, okay, I need to do this. I need to grip this way. I need to double check my grip. Like I need to look down and I need to double check my grip. Now I need to take a halfway mm. practice swing where everything stays really tight so I can feel maybe a shoulder turn if that's what I'm trying to do. And now I need to set in and I need to take my right hand off. People are doing this for yeah. sure. pre-shot routine. And they're, they're saying, I, I'm going to develop this pre-shot routine. And these are the exact things that, that I'm going to do. And they're going through these in their mind. And if you remember the last time we, we did this last year, we got into the neuroscience side of things and started talking about our brainwave frequencies. And when you're going through those checklists, you're going to increase your brainwave frequency. And when you increase brainwave frequency, you decrease the likelihood of hitting a good shot. Um, I'll, I'll plug your old podcast. People can go and listen to an hour's worth of, of that chat. And I think there's yeah. some really interesting things in there. But that's yeah. kind of what's going on when you're going through that mental checklist is your brainwave frequency goes up and it makes you doesn't guarantee you're going to hit a bad shot or, or or not hit a good shot. It just reduces the chances of hitting a good shot. And that was episode yeah. 198, by the way, for someone that wants to go back. Wow, yeah. 198. How many guys have you? How many episodes are you up to? This Over is 251. This is awesome. I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah. A, that's really good. That's um, uh, that's half the battle is sticking with it, right? And just yeah, keep, no. yeah. keep pumping Cons them out. That's awesome. Consistency's been it's our routine. There you go. <laughs> well, Lou, I think we all agree that, but like you said, it's it's much easier said than done. People don't know even when they're doing it, is we don't want to have routines that we're thinking about our swing, right? And we're and we're th and we're thinking about our positions and our all that, even though we do it, you know, and even good players, even I'd say even myself, you know, I like to do a waggle to feel like that club face is facing the ball going back. So is there one we can have Lou? Because, because even, you know, you hear great players talk, they like to feel something, but I think what you're saying is sometimes they're doing four or five feels and don't even realize it. And it's, it really creates a problem. Yeah. Um, I think it's okay to have, I think it's okay to have a feel that you're trying to, to get to. I think that's perfectly fine. And so if, if I'm, if it came across that I don't want you to be doing any of that, that's not really what, what I'm, I'm saying and, and what I mean it's, and, and I see this and I'm not, I'm not going to single anyone out or pick on anyone, but you sure. know, players that I've worked with, I've been out there in practice rounds with them and I can see them going through grinding the mental gears, um, trying to make sure that they do everything perfectly. It's like they're following. It's like they have a recipe off to the side right. and that recipe is in their brain and they're going item by item on that recipe list, making sure they're doing everything and following those instructions perfectly. That'll and burn you out by the yeah, eight hole. That's <laughs> what I want people to avoid. Cause I don't, it, that doesn't put you in a, in a, in a good spot. Um, and when you, you talk to anyone, you guys do this all the time and, you talk to anyone that goes out and has a really good round and plays really well and ask them if they were doing those things. And they will all say, no, 
no. What were you thinking about? I don't know. I was just kind of in the zone. I wasn't really thinking about anything. That's typically what you're going to hear from people. You're not going to hear people say, man, like in my pre-shot routine, I was like, I was just nailing P3 in my P-shot routine and every single pre-shot routine, it was perfect at P3 and it was great. They're not saying that. They're saying, I, I didn't, I didn't even realize what was going on. There was, they were completely in the zone. So this is something that I used to be really embarrassed about. I've told barely anyone this in my life, but I thought there's the potential to help so many of you listening that I wanted to do it. I wanted to share it. So let me give you a little context. I used to be really confused and frustrated about this fact around men and hair loss that we just accept it. Your hair starts to thin as you get a little older and you know some initial panic might set in, some denial. I had denial for a while. And you might think to yourself, well, I guess I'm one of those guys. There's so many of them now, or almost the majority, where my hair is going to thin and I'm going to be bald or balding when I'm older or even you know, in my 30s. And I just thought it's weird that we work to improve in so many areas of our life. But as men, we just accept the fact that we're going to lose our hair and there's nothing to do about it. And so here I am. Um, this is about a year before my wedding. So a couple years ago, and I'm reading Matthew McConaughey's new book memoir called Green Lights. And out of nowhere, he says in a non-promotional way, just telling a story that he was starting to lose his hair and was not gaining roles. And he started using this product called Regenics, which is this all natural system. It's not Rogaine. It's not pills. It's not chemicals. It's not snake oil salesman. And he said it literally, he did it for like six months to a year and his hair was never better. And I'm like, wait, Matt McConaughey, the guy with like the best hair I've ever seen had thinning hair and used this product. And now look at him. It's slicked back. There's no receding hairline. So I said, all right, fuck it. This feels like meant to be. So I contacted Regenics. I got their starter kit and my hair has never been better. It was such an area of insecurity for me. And I really wanted to look my best for my wedding. And I still use it to this day. I pay for it out of my own pocket. And I actually reached out to them because I thought, you know what? We have so many men listening to this show, trying to improve themselves in different areas. Feeling confident in your appearance is a part of mental health and a part of feeling confident and good in every other area, including your golf game. So I was like, fuck it. I'm going to share my story and let's get people on the Regenix train. Okay. So go to Regenix.com, R-E-G-E-N-I-X.com and enter the code train. And I'm going to get you 15% off their starter kit. It's got a specific shampoo, specific conditioner, and different things you treat your hair with on every other day basis and in future episodes, I'm going to explain kind of how the whole process works so that this doesn't go on for too long. Go to Regenix.com, read about it. I'm telling you from personal experience, I'll share some photos on social media at the par train to show you some befores and afters, but I still use them to this day. And it's a family owned company. They're incredible. I'm telling you, it's actually amazing. Okay. The way that the follicle and the dirtiness of your follicle creates hair loss blew my mind. And so go on Regenix.com, find out for yourself, enter the code train, get 15% off and start to take action and control 
of your hair, even if it's preventative and you see it starting to like thin a little bit, which was in my case, get ahead of it. The sooner you can get ahead of it, the better. I've had the best hair of my life now, and I'm about to be 36 in a month or so. So for genix.com, enter the code train, get 50% off. You'll thank me later. All right, let's get back to the show. You know, what's really fascinating. It makes me think about Lou. What's the why of the routine? Right. I would really love to ask people, well, why is your routine, if you have one, the way it is? Like maybe we start with putting and then I want to get to some of the data of a 10 to five to a scratch to understand what people are trying to achieve and how to get there. But first, maybe let's start with putting because putting is a really good one to maybe think about routine because I find it easier to see a direct correlation with routine and my putting performance. So I'll give you my example. We'll hear about yours, Lou. And sir, obviously you're a great putter um, as well. I'd love to hear yours. But to me, I've found that if I'm standing over my ball and I'm looking at the hole and I see the ball going into the hole, whatever my visualization thing is, as soon as I look down back to the ball, I have to start my stroke. And you see a lot of tour pros do this. It feels like one very fluid motion, right? Dustin Johnson's a great example. Looks at the hole. As soon as he looks back down, he's stroking it. It helps make it feel more like a a stroke than a hit, right? And if as long as I do that, I tend to feel more athletic. I get less in my stroke and I just stroke them and I end up making a lot of putts that way. So that's been something that I've had to get curious of. Like, that's why I do it because it helps me stay fluid and it helps me stroke better putts. What is your why and what is your putting routine that's helped you? Well, one, I, th- I think I've I've worked incredibly hard at putting. I've worked extremely hard at green reading. I don't remember if we talked about that last time. Did we talk about green reading last time? I don't think time? we did. Yeah. So I saw somebody uh, back in 2001. This is before Aimpoint existed. This was at the 2001 New York State Amateur at a, at a golf course called Seven Oaks, which is where Cornell plays, and or Colgate. Um, and there was a guy on the 10th green, and this was the practice round. And he was up there, and he's on the green, and he's like walking around, and I'm out there with another guy, and, and we're trying to play our shots up and kind of flag him down, and he comes off the green. <clears throat> we get up there, and – by the time we hit our approach shots and come back up to, to the green, he's on the green again. And he's got a level and he's got a notebook. And I'm like, what the hell is this guy doing? And so I talked to him and said, I thought he was a worker. Like, I didn't know if he was doing stimp or I had no idea what he was doing. And I asked him what he was doing. And he told me, he said, I'm, I'm measuring all of the, uh, all different parts of the green. And I'm writing down how much break there is. And then I use that to determine how much break I should play on a putt. I went, what? And he's like, and I didn't quite understand it at first. And then he said, you know, if you were to go and he's like, did you ever take physics? And I'm like, yeah, I take physics class. He's like, if you had to roll a marble down a a flat surface, a planar surface, and then you tilted that planar surface and you roll the marble, you know, at a known speed on a known surface with a known break, how would you calculate how much that marble was going to curve? Would you just eyeball it? And I went, no, it's, it's, and, and he went, yeah, it's a, it's a math problem. And I went, oh, bingo. That's really super interesting. 
And so there was a website back then. I forget the name of it. This guy had tons of info on putting and he had charts on there where he had gone out and he had measured, you know, based on how far away you were from the hole, how much break there was and the stimp of the green, he measured where your aim needed to be. I, I still keep those same charts in my yardage book and that's how I put it. That's basically what aim point is. It's, you know, a known stimp, a known distance and a known amount of a slope and that will tell you how much it's going to break the aim point express people with fingers they're just yeah. kind of they're, they're getting past all the numbers and they're getting to something that's really You're easy to do and you don't have to look too. at a chart a lot of tour yeah. players a square feet over the yeah. yeah yeah and and so i worked extremely hard at getting good at green reading like after i got back from that state am i went out and i bought a digital level i would go to my club at night and I would drive around at night with a notebook and a digital level. And I would just go onto a green and I would, I would, I would do it two ways. And I would track how I did. I would look at a spot with my eyes and I would say, all right, that's one and a half percent. And then I would go over and I would stand on that spot and I would feel it and go, all right, that, that feels like 2%. Um, and I would write down each guess and then I would measure it and see how I did. And then I would alternate what I started with. So then I'd go to a ra another random spot and I would, I would start the opposite and I would keep track of how I did. And I, I discovered that I was just as good with my eyes as I am with my feet, which is how I read putts now pretty much exclusively with my eyes. But I worked extremely hard at that part of the game. And I think most decent players, like as you start to get down to, you know, single digits, most decent players are hitting start lines pretty good with their putter for the most part. I mean, do you, do you occasionally leave them open or pull them? Yeah, absolutely. But you're hitting start lines pretty good when you get to down to be, you know, low single digits. And then it, there's only two other things, your speed and your read. Like if you have decent speed and you're still missing a ton of putts and, you know, if you're hitting your start lines and, and you have good speed, it's it's going to be your read. And I think as players get better, that becomes more the culprit. And for me, I'm going to come around and get to, get to your, your question, but for me, like what helped me become a good putter was how hard I worked at it. The one thing that I do in my routine that I try to feel in my routine after I pick my line, my line to me is I see a perfectly straight putt. Um, I don't see anything curve. I, I figure out how much it's going to break. I see a perfectly straight putt and I putt to that spot that's straight out ahead of me. But the or thing the fall, that I, right. the thing, yeah, the thing that I always do is I grew up playing hockey. And if you know what a one timer is, like when somebody passes over to you and you one time it, I try to pretend um, that I'm one timing the ball, which seems weird. Like I want, I want to, cool. in my mind, I feel like, the ball is coming over to me and I'm just reacting to it. Um, so when I come back down, after I bring my head back down, I pull right. the trigger pretty quickly like you. Um, yeah. But I, I, in my mind, I feel like the ball is kind of floating over from the side and I'm just timing it up and one timing it. I, I really like that, Luke, because there's a That's real cool. rhythm piece to that. Yeah. Right. To, to establish, to maintain your rhythm, you're really focused on that. It's pretty simple. But as we discussed the routine, you know, one thing I see from players, they don't often, I don't see them looking behind the hole or looking at the hole, like in front of the hole, which way the grass is growing. And if I would, you know, give advice to a higher handicapper or anybody for that matter, what can you put into your routine without slowing things up, but just being conscious of where you are is look behind the hole. 
and look in front of the hole too, because obviously, as we know, we can hit a good butt. It's like it breaks at the end. It was going left and then it ends up going right. But those are a couple of just, you don't see those repeated by people. It just takes, just takes a little extra work, but not to complicate things, but it's helped me a lot. Yeah. The other thing too, that I would, I would tell people to really pay attention to on putting and, and that this really isn't necessarily about the routine that we're talking about, but it's really important is I would be trying to gather as much information as I can with balls on the green. Um, and that means watching and paying attention to what golf balls are doing. Even when you're, uh, you know, an approach shot and you're 150 yards away and you hit one on the green, a lot of amateurs are not spinning the ball like crazy um, in a lot of situations. So if one of your playing partners, you know, hits one on the green, it kind of hits and starts to release and maybe it's going around the hole somewhere, pay attention, try to see if you can pick up any bits of information on what the golf ball is doing, because those make a huge difference. Like on the PGA tour, there are three different kinds of putts. Um, there are putts that you have, uh, they're basically second putts, second putts, third putts, you know, fourth putts, if you happen to be in that horrific situation, um, those are putts where you have a lot of information on. Um, you've gotten to hit a putt by the hole. You see what it's doing. You see how it's breaking. You see what the speed is. Those putts have the highest make rate. So let's take five footers. Five footers that are second putts, the highest make rate. The next highest make rate from all five foot putts are putts that happen after a chip shot or a pitch shot. These are shots from around the green that you're typically going to get some type of information around the hole on what the yep. ball is doing. Those have the second highest make rates. Third highest worst make rate are shots that you have no real information on. And these are shots that happen, you know, you stuff one to five feet from 175 yards away. You have no idea what that ball is going to do. You're, you're guessing. And so I would encourage people to pay attention to their playing partners. Um, even when your playing partners are hitting chip shots, pitch shots around the green, which is a lot. Amateurs don't hit very many greens. So your playing partners are going to be in those situations a lot. Try to pick up information around the hole because it will 100% help you out. I see people that I play with all the time that are completely not paying attention to any of that. I don't want you to be completely, uh, you know, focused on what everyone else is doing and forget about you. But these are little things that you can do to pick up, you know, fractions of a shot, which help to um, help you to shoot lower scores. Well, I, I love that because that's a routine that isn't tied to a specific. That's not a pre-shot, right? That's not a post-shot. That's a routine just to do regularly. And I actually, it's funny you bring this up because I found that this is actually true with most very good players, especially tour players. Remember Parker McLaughlin, sir, was talking to me, talking to us about how he'd walk up to the greens and excited to get there because it's the moment that you can actually complete the hole. So as he was walking up, he was walking up number one with excitement, but number two, which you don't hear very often from higher higher handicaps. So a lot of times it's dread or nerves. <laughs> um, and then there's also what they're a detective. They're walking up and they're looking at things. I remember 
Rory McIlroy once said he was looking at the 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 flag blowing on an 18th green when he's standing on the ninth tee somewhere and gaining information. And I actually think that's a valuable tool too on a third piece to get yourself out of your ego and stay in observation mode of gaining information and kind of staying in the round without necessarily thinking about results. That could be a great valuable distractor while also gaining really good information. Yeah, I agree completely. I think you're absolutely spot on there. So don't, don't mean to turn this into a, a non-routine conversation, but I think some of these tips can, can really help people to squeeze out an extra shot here or there. Uh, which is what we're all trying to do. It's why you guys do what you do on this podcast is to try to help people shoot better yeah, scores. Absolutely. Yeah. So what is the difference between going back from the green back to the T? Like, obviously, the main reason why people would say, I want to listen to the routines episode is because they want to get better. And most people that are a 15 plus handicap probably aren't really thinking about what they're trying to do or have any sort of process in what they're doing. A lot of times you're just trying to prevent the bad thing to happen that happened 10 minutes ago or that happened last time you played. So before sure. we dig into those more, what are the markers that, Sarm, what do you think is best? A 10 going to a five? You think that's, I think 80% yeah. of our audience is above a five. So let's talk a 10 to a five. Let's yeah. start with around the greens. What does a 10 need to do to get to a five from a, let's just start with what greens hit and putts per round. Maybe do you have those? I want to, I want to stick with strokes gained because looking at some of those traditional stats can, you know, they can be, you know, they can be a little bit misleading at times. So let's stick with strokes gained if that's Okay. Okay. Sure. The the difference between a 10 handicap and a five handicap is roughly about five shots, typically around there. Right. Makes sense. Around the green, the difference uh, is about 0.7 strokes gained short game. So around the green, it's it's only 0.7 shots of that five shot difference. Wow. Doesn't make up that much. It's relatively small. Now, these are overall these are. 10 handicaps compared to the typical 10, the average 10 compared to the typical five. And that can also be misleading. You can, did I give you the example on, on 10 handicap putters um, when we talked last time? I don't remember if I did. It's not ringing a bell. Um, so. All right. So this is why it's so important to track your stats. I can give you these numbers for the typical 10 and the typical five. And they may apply to you. They may not apply to you. And here's a great example as to why. Let's say the three of us were all 10 handicaps. And we get on the first tee. What's your handicap? I'm a 10. I'm a 10. I'm a 10. All right, cool. No strokes today. We're playing straight up. Awesome. But Evan, he is in the top 5% of putters for all 10 handicaps. That means he putts like the typical scratch player. So the, the top 5% of putters that are, remember, they're 10 handicaps, that he would putt like the typical scratch player. I'm Probably true. middle of the road. I'm, I putt, I'm a 10 handicap, and I putt like the typical 10 handicap. Sorry, Matt, you're the shitty one here. I'm sorry. Sorry if I you so bleeped I that one out. Didn't mean to, you didn't can, mean to you let can that You can curse fly. on the train. <laughs> yeah, we're all right. you're, you're in the bottom 5% of putters. 
for 10 handicaps. You putt like the typical 20 handicap. So Evan's putting like the typical scratch. You are putting like the typical 20 handicap. There's almost five shots of difference in putting between the two of you, right? So for, you know, a coach or someone to prescribe this formula to go from a 10 to a five, it may apply to you. It may not apply to you. Like mm. I would typically say you probably don't want to work too much on your putting too much on your short game. Like ball striking is going to be key, but Matt, I would be telling Matt, I'd be screaming at, at Matt saying, dude, you have to become a better putter. You got to work on start line. You got to work on green reading. You got to work on speed control. Like you are not a good putter. This is why it's so important to know your numbers so you can figure out what works for you. But back to kind of the typical one, there's less than a shot of around the green difference between a 10 and a five. Is there some there? Yes. For some players, there won't be anything there. For some players, there's going to be three, four shots of opportunity there. They have horrible short games. They have a short game nips. They can't play out of bunkers. You know, you name, you name it. So that's why it's important to know where you fit in all of these. If Evan is a 10 handicap, but he putts like a scratch. Yep. How do you determine that? Do you determine putts per round? Because as we know, Evan could be, you know, 28 putts around, but he's hitting four greens versus hitting. It's all, it's really, it's all, all based on strokes game. Yeah. It, it doesn't yep. deviate. So I just want to make sure yep. we're clear. Yep. Is everybody yeah. Yeah. All based on strokes game. Yep. So tip less than uh less than a shot of difference in around the green between a, a 10 and uh in a five. But again, your results may vary depending on you and where you are. Which is so interesting, right? Because someone might yeah. hear that. And to your point, Lou, you kind of have to take everything with a grain of salt personalized to you. But you might hear that right. generally and think, you know, 2022 for us was the year of the short game. And we made this pledge that I go to the range once a week and I spend an hour hitting balls. I'm going to start splitting it and doing 30 minutes at the short game area, 30 minutes hitting balls. And now my short game is the best part of my game. Yeah. My ball striking is now coming back. Thank God. But <laughs> I've I've seen, and this is why this conversation is so interesting, because I went from a five to a nine, and now I'm back to a seven. Yeah. Um, and that was all ball striking. So someone might hear that stat and say, well, I just need to go back to the range. But it's interesting the different, the cascade effect right, of having more confidence around the greens might enable you to feel more committed on full shots because you feel like you can recover. But I think the, the, the magic question, right, the 10 handicap versus the 5 handicap, Lou, how many balls is a 10 handicap losing off the tee versus a 5 handicap? Right? Yeah, where because are they losing that's all That's where that? you're – I think this is what you're getting at here, and I think let's let's – Open yeah, the, yeah, it's, it's the mean, bigger the, numbers, right? It, it, I want to I want to give you one more little tidbit on short game to, you know, the the year of the short game. I love short game. Um, we, I, I every part of the game is important. Right? Every single yeah. part of the game matters. You you don't. There's no freebies out there. You have to putt. You have to chip. You have to pitch. You have to hit out of bunkers. You have and to. They're all worth the hit same. Hit irons and drivers. You you have to play all parts of the game. And if you, if you're a 10 and you want to get to a scratch or you 10, you want to get to a five, you typically are going to need to improve incrementally in every part of the game and get better. That's going to be typical for most players. And the one thing I will say about short games. So when I'm saying short game, I mean, you know, you're chipping, you're pitching your bunker play, you're around the green within 50 yards of the hole. When you look at 
every handicap range, whether it's scratch players, fives, tens, fifteens, twenties, doesn't matter. And you just look at all of the five handicaps together. Let's just pick that number. And you want to find the players that are the most consistent fives. Remember, the handicap system isn't based on all your scores. It's based on the best eight out of your last 20. You want to find the most consistent fives. They tend to have the best short games. So if you have a really tight short game, you are more likely to have a tighter window with your scores. You're not going to be all over the place. You're not going to show up one day and shoot 95 and the next day and shoot 71. Your scores are going to be in a much tighter window. You're going to have less variance in your scoring. So short game is important. For some people, it's way more important. For some people, it's way less important. But if you want to, whatever handicap level you're at, if you want to make your scores more consistent, uh, your short game is typically, for most people, going to be the thing that allows you to do that. Mm. See, that's, that's good. That's really good. No, that's great. That's great context. Rooted in, that, in see, that's too. so important to go deeper than the 0. 0.7, right? Yeah. Where you hear that out of five, you're like, oh. I should be at the range all day, but then you see disparity and it's like, oh, okay. So actually if I want to play more consistent, the short game is probably really important to your point about everything's important, but I think that's helpful context. Now, let me ask you this, Lou, Yeah, because we're talking routines and now we're moving back. The takeaway I got from putting was we all seem to be pretty deliberate in our routine um, we don't like to necessarily stand that long over the putt. We get our line, however you decide to read it. Sir, I actually think you make a great point. I tend to play really fast, so I don't read the putt on the other side. And I don't even get down to read it a lot. I'm, I'm kind of like instinctual, and I try and keep it as artistic as I can. But every time I blow a putt by and I go on the other side of the hole, I think to myself, oh, wow, I didn't realize how downhill this was until I went to the other side. That was a, a lack of effort or a, you know, a miss in a routine that I could have saved. So that's what I'm taking away from a putting routine. Um, we can go into more detail about that if if we want and if you have anything to add, sir. But around the greens, it seems to me that you don't necessarily think of this as a routine, but I actually find it was most helpful for me that turned the worst part of my game now into my best is there's a level of unspoken routine around just seeing what I want to create and seeing where I want to leave it. A lot of times when I think about my worst rounds around the greens a few years ago, I'd be focused on technique and thinking about technique that helped me have the best contact. I'm not thinking about where I want to leave it at all. Where now I've got my root, I've got my technique down thanks to Cermak and Parker McLaughlin, you guys helped me more than anyone. But now I'm thinking, what does the lie give me? Cermak taught me that. So the lie dictates the shot. For chipping and pitching. Yep. Yep. And then I'm thinking, okay, well, I don't really want to take that lip of the bunker on or that corner of the bunker. So I'm going to play five feet left of the pin and try and give myself eight feet. Right. Do I want it to run where I'm kind of releasing it? Do I need to stop it where I'm kind of holding on? And then I go. And I don't think a lot of people around the greens, especially tens or above, are really thinking about what do I want this to do? Where do I want this to land? And what result would I be happy with here? 
Yeah, it sounds like you have a great approach. Any thoughts with you from around the greens that you think aren't necessarily like, I think a lot of what I'm starting to learn here, Lou, is it's not necessarily pre-shot routines as you'd normally think about it. It's more just, what do I do to help me get prepared for the shot? So what helps you feel prepared over a shot around the green? How do you, what do you think about with routines? Yeah, you, know, you you brought up something that I think is so important, and I think it's um, it's a huge disparity between higher handicap players and really good elite players, and, and that's how you read a lie, um, and mm-hmm. that is such a key factor. And if you get out and you look at you know 10, 12, 15, 20 handicaps, trying to read lies, whether it's around the green or on approach shots. They are not good at reading lies. You know, they are just, they just, I think it's, it's not even a consideration in a lot of circumstances. Well, I'm 210 yards away. I'm just, you know, I'm going to hit a three wood. That's my 210 yard club. And it's like, it's down buried and four inch roughed and the grain, you know, the grain is running against you. And I'm looking at that going like, I don't know if I could get a nine iron on that much less a three wood. Like, what are you thinking? Yeah. And that applies around the green as well. And I love the fact that you said, you know, the lie is is really going to help me dictate what I'm trying to do. And I don't think a lot of people are are doing that. Um, and so all of those evaluations that you're making, um, and the other thing that you said that I think is extremely important, and it gets you target focused, it helps you be reactionary, is is picking that that spot. If you were to I don't know this definitively, but if you were to go out and, you know, ask an amateur, uh, what was your landing spot for this particular chip or pitch shot with what trajectory and, you know, what, how did you think it was going to release? And when I say that, I mean, you know, spin, if people are being honest, most people are not going to be able to answer that. Like they're not doing any of those things. They're just going out there and they see a hole 20 yards away, 25 yards away, and they're just, just hitting it towards that hole, trying to hit it that distance, and, and they haven't picked any of those things out. So the things you're doing, I think, help a lot. I want to ask you one question, though. You said your short game got a lot better, your ball striking got worse. How do you know that it got better or worse? What What are you using to track your stats? That's good. That's a good point. I'm not tracking, actually, but I will say the differences are quite obvious where it would be, you know, tops off the tee and losing a lot of balls and miss only hitting like three three greens crazy miss hits really bad contact but then around the greens i'm not chunking it i'm not scolding it i'm giving yeah. myself four to five footers but um, we've tied that back to a little bit of a mental process for you yeah 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 the one thing I would I would encourage you to do, and I'm not picking on you here. Yeah, but fair. I would encourage you. I know you're pretty serious about the game, and you're working extremely hard to get as good as you can get. I would encourage you to start tracking your stats, and that is going to be pretty eye opening. Did did I tell the the Justin Rose story when I was here last time about his wedge play? I don't remember. It's been so so. last year. All right, so Justin Rose, when he started to work with Sean Foley, he said, "My wedge play is horrible." Like it's just the worst. We got to fix my wedges. They're broken. And Sean Foley went and looked at the numbers and he went, you're like the second best wedge player on the tour in strokes gained per shot. Like you're literally one of the best wedge players on the planet. Like, what are you talking about? 
And Justin Rose had some serious misconceptions and internal bias about his own game. This is what he's really good at the game of golf. And he's pretty dialed into what's going on in his game, but he was so far off base. And I'm sure that was driven by maybe he hit a bit of a loose wedge shot in a key period, you know, at a key moment. And that kind of got into his head. And then anytime, like you're occasionally going to hit some loose ones, right? It happens to everybody, even at his level. And when he would hit a loose one, he probably just confirmed his own bias and said, I'm a horrible wedge player. And when when he was peppering the flag and hitting tons of great wedge shots, he was not saying I'm an incredible wedge player. He was just remembering all of those bad ones and the numbers didn't support that. And there's a lot of players. I've had so many players that have started to track their stats with Arcos that have either I worked with directly and they're players that I've helped or players that, you know, just reach out to me on social media or emails or whatever and say, you know, I thought I was a phenomenal putter. I stink. Like I'm not a good putter. It was nowhere near what I thought it was or the opposite. I thought I was a horrible putter and I'm actually really good. So I would encourage you to do that because without that, you're, you know, you are going to, we're all human and we're going to have some, some biases in there that may or may not be right or wrong. So I encourage you to do that. What is one area, Lou, real quick? I know you want to jump in, sir. What would I be looking at that would tell me I'm a better ball striker than I thought? Are you lo- looking at strokes gained? Yeah, strokes approach? gained is yeah, strokes gained is what would drive that. There. In strokes gained, there's four parts of the game: off the tee, which is you know your tee shots with yep. basically a driver, but on par fours and par fives. Your approach play around the green and putting; those are the four areas, and you would get strokes gained numbers in, in all of them. And that would really help to identify what's working, what's not working in your game and where you should focus some time. All right. So you guys really did it. You guys blew that Meridian putters giveaway out of the water. That was maybe our biggest giveaway we've ever done. It was like a thousand comments. It it was going all over the internet. There were scam accounts created to try and scam people out of winning. The people that got their five putters are over the moon. The other five that they made sold out immediately on meridianputters.com. So now that we've gotten through the open championship and the exclusive open championship themed putter from Meridian, I just wanted to tell you guys a little bit about them because I didn't have a, a lot of opportunities to do that because the focus was the giveaway, but I actually got the chance to visit their plant and their warehouse in Wisconsin. I'm actually blown away by what they're doing. Okay. I don't know if you guys have realized this, but recently I'd say in the last few years, I've noticed like, why are normal stock putters now like $400, $500? Like I used to accept that like a Scotty or a Bettinardi was like three to four to five to $600. They're in the little cases and the corrals in the store. But now I'm seeing TaylorMades, Pings, Callaways for like at least $350, $400. And it makes no sense. I think inflation costs have gone up. People are still paying it, but I don't think you should. Okay. So Ryan at Meridian Putters, to give you a little context on him, had a manufacturing company. He would mill parts for aerospace industry, for rockets. And he has these million dollar machines. He sold his company and he's like, all right, I really want to do something that I care about, that means something. And nobody has machines like these. He has CNC milling machines 
that are fully automated. So it doesn't even need to be manned. He plugs the information in and it takes a single block of stainless steel and cuts away millimeter by millimeter until a perfect putter comes out every time. And he can do that while they're sleeping. So because of his technology and because he cares about giving back to golfers and believes that everybody deserves a milled perfect putter, that's what Meridian is about. You can get a custom milled putter starting at 250 bucks. Like, just think about what I just said. A $250 putter now is a basic putter you can get on any putting crowd. Like, that is the floor these days. It's not even the floor. It's it's almost underneath the floor. That's a basic starting price. And you're getting a Bettinardi, Scotty Cameron level putter. You can make it whatever you want. I got a little par train logo. I got an enjoy the ride on the sole. You can pick your face options. You can pick inserts. You can pick the finishes. You can pick your hosels. You can pick head types. Just picture how amazing it is to be able to go on meridianputters.com and say, all right, I'm going to build the perfect putter. They joke with me. They said they don't want you spending $600 on a stock putter. They'd rather you go play Pebble instead. So go to meridianputters.com, enter the code train, and guess what? I got you guys a 25% off. So if you got a $250 putter, you now got a $200 putter. Milled to perfection, whatever specs you want. So meridianputters.com, enter the code train, get 25% off, which is crazy, and craft your perfect putter. They believe there's a perfect putter inside all of us, just like there is inside a single block of steel. And I got mine, and I'm telling you, it's true. Enjoy it, guys. I can't wait to see what kind of putters you build. Meridianputters.com, enter the code train, get 25% off. All right, let's get back to the show. The data is not going to lie. I think off the tee, you know, you count your fairways every round, you're like, man, can't hit more than seven fairways around. But I think what I've looked at in my game, at least a little bit, is yeah, maybe hit seven fairways today, but I missed all those other fairways in the right spots and they were hit pretty hard and I missed on the left side and that's where I needed to be. As you know, and I think, okay, I didn't hit the fairway, but I'm I'm playing the golf course as it's, you know, so, so quote unquote supposed to be played. So right. that's more way more important. Being able to play from spots, you know, when you don't when you miss the fairway as compared to yeah, for us amateurs, fairways are completely 100% overrated. Uh, for anyone that's, you know, going out on their scorecard and tracking greens and regulation, fairways hit and number of putts, stop. Just just especially stop fairways and number There's of putts. There's a quote for the greens, episode right there. Greens yeah. are okay. It's okay to track greens and regulation. That is a very strong relationship to uh, how good of a player you're going to be. More greens you hit, the lower your handicap is going to be. Fairways all amateur players at every level are between like 45 and 50% fairway set roughly. I mean, there's some that are a little more accurate, some that are a little bit less, but there's not this huge disparity for amateur players. It's keeping the ball in play. So tee shots, reasonable contact, you know, that means, you know, you didn't top it or sky it and it went 40 yards, reasonable contact doesn't have to be your best of the day. Um, and it's in play. Uh, in play would mean on the fairway, in the rough. Then we want to start to avoid, you know, we really don't want to be in bunkers. We want to try to avoid those if we can. We're not very good out of those, most amateur players. Then we need to avoid hazards. So we don't want to be, you know, hitting one into the water and having to drop up there and hitting three. And then we want to completely try to avoid, you know, OB where it's stroke and distance penalty. So 
anywhere in play is completely fine as an amateur. And it also means you don't have something directly in front of you, right? So if you hit a drive and it was struck decently and you have a view of the green, pretty good drive. 100%. And that's actually a benefit I've realized, sir. I've told you this. Recently, I've realized what a gift this past year and a half of terrible ball striking is because now when I just hit a solid drive, even if I pull it, 20 yards or I block it a little bit. It's not bothering you. It doesn't bother me because I'm actually like so grateful for a good strike. You know what I mean? Solid contact. Yeah, Yeah, that's great. And you, and, and, you know, as long as we're talking about tee shots driver, um, I know we're going to come back to the strokes gains here. So off the tee, it's so important. There's a, there's a difference between um, 10 handicaps and five handicaps of, of, 1.2 1.2 shots off the tee, 1.2. And we did, I never gave the approach number. It's 2.1. That's the biggest mm. driver. 40% of the difference between a 10 cap and a, and a five cap is, is going to be your approach play, your iron play. But driver is the one thing that's really driving this is, is penalty shots. You know, five handicaps are going to be a little bit longer and that contributes to it, but they hit less balls out of bounds or into recovery situations where you have to come out sideways. And one of the mistakes that I see a lot of amateur players make is they're always picking targets, typically middle-ish of the fairway, and they're not shifting their target away from trouble. There's a par five at a golf course near me, and I've tweeted this out a few times because it's a great example. There's water, depending on what tees you play, there's water that starts on the right about 180 yards off the tee. And it just goes forever. Like you can't knock it over the water. You know, you'd have to fly at 350 to knock it over the water. And the fairway is only about 36 yards wide. Uh, from the edge of the fairway by the water, it's just a, you know, it's a 60 degree bank. So anything that is just off the fairway is going in the in the water. It's 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 gone. And that fairway is about 36 yards wide. For most amateurs, their target is going to be in the left rough, more than 36 yards away from where that water is. And I don't mean that's where they're starting the ball and trying to bring it back into the fairway. That's where they want the ball to finish. So let's say you need for you, depending on how big of an area you hit your driver into, you need 40 yards of space or 38 yards of space. So let's say you're two yards into the rough and you play a 20 yard cut. You would need to be aiming 20 yards left of that for the ball to then come back 20 yards and finish two yards into the left rough, 38 yards away from where that water is. I see so many amateur players. Now this is of course, assuming there's room to do that, right? If you have room to shift away from water, from out of bounds, from thick trees that you're going to have to maybe not even find your ball or come out sideways from shift far away from those as far as you can. I don't care if you're going to be in the rough shift away because those penalty strokes are absolutely killing your scorecard. But do you think fives are actively thinking that? They need to be. Compared to tens? Yeah. uh, I I think golf IQ typically is going to, you know, will tend to get better as players' Mm -hmm. uh, handicaps get lower. I think that's a fair assessment. Um, You know, some people are, you know, five handicaps, scratch handicaps, you know, pluses because they're just, you know, incredible athletes, right? They're just 
physical specimens. Uh, not not like me. I'm not a physical specimen. So, but I, but I, I, I think, have to. Yeah. No, I'm I'm like you, Lou. I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> well, just short guy, right? <laughs> you know. Um, but I do think there's there's a relationship with target that you see the better player that it's all relative. A five understands better than a ten. A scratch bet understands better than a five, and it's picking out the right ones um, at the right, just more at the right times and uh, understanding that. Yeah. I, I think, you know, as, as the handicap goes up, I think the, even the, the, the bigger problem is it's, it's not just, you know, picking the right targets. It's just picking a target. Um, you know, if you right. ask a 15 handicap to answer you honestly, you know, on every tee shot, uh, if you went out to a scramble and watched a whole bunch of 15s come through a specific hole and when they were done, you know, they agreed to answer it perfectly honestly. And you asked them what their target was. Most people wouldn't have one. Like, you know, kind of just that. Trying way. to go out. Yeah, just they're, trying to go yeah, out. There. They're not the picking way. anything specific. They're just kind of sort of hitting it that way and hoping for the best and, and not thinking through any of these things. I think that uh, improves as people get better and they get a little bit more, uh, they, they get more precise with their targets. They take more things into account. Uh, but these are things, even if you're a 15 handicap, you can apply these things and your game is going to get better. Reduce your penalty shots by shifting well away from them um, and your scores will come down. So Lou, what do you say to a coach that says, because I think a big thing I really want to get for the listener taking away from the T because it was my Achilles heel for the longest time and I'm finally starting to see the light in the end of the tunnel in my game. Some coaches say, Let's say you play a big slice, right? Let's talk to the 15 right now. Yeah. And you're aimed, you aimed 50 yards left. A, a golf coach will say, you're creating a bigger slice, right? What do you say to that? Like, obviously, they kind of have to. Well, right? I mean, you, you, you dance with the person you brought. Right. But in a perfect world, you're working with your swing coach to you know, minimize curvature, you know, for a lot of reasons, right. you know, if you're playing a 50 yard slice one, you are, you know, you are hurting yourself on distance. Um, yeah. and distance is really important. Every 10 yards, roughly for an amateur player, you're going to get about a shot better. And if you have a 50 yard slice and you can turn that into a, you know, a two yard cut, you're going to gain a lot of yards off the tee. You know, ball is just not going to go anywhere near as far with that much curvature on it. So mm. the straighter the shot, the longer the ball is going to go. So I, I would be working with my coach. You know, we're not going to, all of the things we're talking about here to optimize, um, you know, if you have a horrific swing and you're a 35 handicap, and I don't want that to sound the wrong way, but if you're a beginner golfer um, and you're a 35 or 40 handicap and you're shooting 120 every time, you know, can you apply these techniques and help you to get better? You can, but that's not going to get you down to a five. You're not going to go from a 40 to a five right. by apply. You need to get better uh, with your swing, uh, which would mean engaging a coach, which would mean uh, working with someone on all of these things. And, you know, the other thing I'm going to come back to what's really valuable is when you work with, ask any instructor, Hey, what, what is every player that sees you, what do they tell you? What do they want out of the lesson or the, the group of lessons that you're going to give them? Like 99% of, of golfers say, I want to be more consistent. Right. It would be amazing to walk in there with actual numbers that you can hold up 
and say, these are my strokes gain numbers. Like, this is what my tee shots are looking like. Here's what my approach play looks like. Here's my around the green. Here's my putting. Here's how it's been trending. Here's what's working. Here's what's not. And giving them that information and then trying to move those numbers, working on your swing with the swing coach, and then seeing the results of that in your numbers, as opposed to anecdotally trying to decide what got better, what got worse. Um, but yeah, I would, I'm not, I would never in a million years tell someone to not go to a swing coach and, and try to become as good as they possibly can with the swing. That's extremely important if you want to get to higher levels is to find somebody to work on those things. We got to talk about the great differentiator between the five and the 10 it's approach. Lou, I was talking to or texting with a buddy the other day. Actually, have I mentioned this to you? He's like, man, I'm shooting in the low nineties. Um, but you know, my approach play, it's three, four shots around that pull or, you know, push. And I go, well, he's like, what should I do with my swing? I'm like, I, I can't fix your swing over a text message. But I did ask him what well, we, the targets uh, one of our themes today. Tell me about your process with targeting as well. I just, I mean, you're in your alignment because I just, you know, I look at the flag, name my club face there, align my feet left. And I was like, you're aiming at the flag. <laughs> and he goes, well, yeah. I said, well, I don't even aim at the flag. You know, Tiger doesn't aim at the flag. So he said, you you really got to try to create a relationship in a visual with we hear all the time, the center of the green or the fattest part of the green and give that a shot to kind of free up your mind. So with all that said, Lou, is, is there a connection there between the five and the 10? Because yeah, well, I mean, 100%. Like I, I posted this the other a couple of days ago, crazy timing here. Uh, I put um, some information out there. I think it was maybe yesterday. I lose track of it all. It was between scratch players and 12 handicaps. Um, and it was from 125 yards in the fairway. You can probably pull up my Twitter as I'm going through and see what I'm talking yeah. about here. Mm -hmm. And these, these, I think these I players. This. Yeah. Did you see this one? Yeah. So what, what is absolutely fascinating with this is these were situations where the flag was cut five yards or less from the edge of the green. Right. And so when you look at the scratch players and let's say the hole is tucked hard on the left-hand side and it's five yards or less from the edge of the left side of the green. And you look at the dispersion from the scratch players and they're shifted over to the right. The center of their pattern is shifted over to the fat part of the green over towards the middle of the green. And let's stick with the scratch players. The opposite, the flag is cut really hard to the right-hand side of the green. You look at their dispersion and they've shifted it left. They've shifted it towards the center of the green. You look at the 12 handicaps and their dispersion, while it's bigger, it stays pretty much centered at the flag. They're not mm. shifting it left just or right. Taking dead they aim are, all day. They're, right they're taking dead aim all day long. And you would now, while their pattern is bigger, like the blob that they hit it into, the bucket they hit into hit it into is bigger. Still, we would see the center of that shifted one way or the other if they were not firing directly at flags. And uh, these scratch players that were, will typically have higher golf IQ, they know that when the flag is cut really hard to one side, if you short side it on that side, Screw it's it. going to be really hard even to for a good player. Even for a good player, it's going to be really challenging for a good player to get the ball up and down for par. So they're shifting away from that. They're avoiding that trouble. Like there might be there, you know, there's no trouble in the examples that I posted about. There was no water or anything in play here. 
And they're not shifting away from water. They're just shifting away from being short-sighted, which you have to think of is like trouble. So as a 12 handicap, you need to be shifting away from that. The other part that I think that gets, that gets lost sometimes when we talk about targets and we talk about dispersion is when I say those things and we're talking through them, just about everyone is thinking left and right. Um, They're not thinking short and long. And that's extremely important. Short and long is very important. We do not, even good players, we do not make perfect contact all the time. We deliver the club in a variable manner. The club goes, the ball goes a different distance. It's not perfect every time. We have a range of distances that we're going to, to hit that ball. And for you know, 10, 12 handicaps, there are not too many greens. You know, Once they get outside of 80, 90 yards, there's not too many greens where their north-south target, like how far they're trying to hit the ball, shouldn't be about the middle of the green. Um, now I'm, I'm saying that as a generalization, right? There's yeah, going to be some greens that are massive that you're not going to want to do that. There's going to be some situations where there's, uh, you know, there's water up front or there's out of bounds long or, and you're, you're going to be shifting things like that. But in a typical situation on a typical green, you typically are going to want to be about the halfway point North South, you know, for most mid handicap players. And, and that is one that a lot of people they don't take into account and which is why you see this huge disparity between greens and regulation to back pins versus front pins, you know, back pins, even on the PGA tour. I want to, I think it's, I've, I've put this out there. Don't hold me to it. I think it was from about 170 yards or 175 yards to a back pin. They hit the green like 73% of the time and to a front pin, it was like 57% of the time. It was a massive difference because they're coming up short too. Right. Um, mm. Now I don't want you to blow them balls over the green, but you know, you also need to take into account your North South dispersion and pick targets accordingly. Yeah. Ev, I want to get your take just on this from the human perspective. To me, I think what's so difficult for golfers in the, let's say the 10 handicap, the 12 handicap to kind of figure this concept out. Yeah. I know about the middle of the green, but it's like after you hit a good drive and you got a gap wedge in your hand and you're telling me I've got to aim 30 feet right of the pin, it's kind of soul crushing. I mean, even sometimes, you know, Lou, I'm a scratch player, but like a couple of rounds ago, I remember five yards off the left, 118 yards, deep bunker left. And I hit it to 30 feet. Now I probably wanted to hit it to 15 feet, but it was a, it's a shot that I had to say, this is kind of tough. And I kind of backed off it. You know, I came out of it a touch, but whatever, I two put it for par. But I do think when you hit that good drive and you have that short iron, especially for those mid handicappers, it's hard to have the discipline to do this stuff. And it's like, man, this is my chance. Right. So yeah. I, I, I think there's really something to that because I just, you see people just having a hard time well, wanting to do the unsexy stuff. I think once again, we're seeing a trend of quote routines with approach play is really strategy and getting clear on what the situation is giving you and under having the level of awareness and um, information to know your tendencies and your dispersion, right? So like a good example of this term, in our last podcast, when we dug, uh, dug deep in my plus one round, I wasn't starting the day saying, I'm going to aim to the middle of the green every time. What I ended up doing naturally without even realizing it until we reflected was 
when I had a back flag that was a perfect yardage where even if I hit this club 100% perfect on the nose, that's the only scenario that it would get close. Any sure. other option was going to be in the back third or middle or even front of the green. Right. Because and you, the old, you can't go, you can't go long and have, because I couldn't go long, but I would, but I guess the takeaway there, Lou is I committed to going at a pin when the only option of it getting close is if I hit it perfect and my not so perfect shots would be in the middle. But that was me having an understanding of my dispersion and my yardage ranges, as you put it. Yeah, definitely. It's important to understand not only your left, right, but your short long. Yeah. And, you know, we're talking a lot of bit, a lot of what we're talking about here are people that would say, you know, I need to make, I want, I'm trying to make more birdies. And making more birdies is not how you're going to get better. And this is something I, I've posted this a few times, but I posted it recently. Um, scratch players, they they average 2.2 birdies per round. And 20 index players, 20 shots worse than scratch, they average 0.3 birdies per round. So there's 1.9 shots worth of difference. Not much. In, in birdies between scratch and 20. Now, here's one that's going to stand out. Doubles are worse. Scratch players average 0.7 doubles or worse per round. 20 index players average 6.6 doubles. That's where the difference is. You want to take your doubles and turn them into bogeys. You want to take your bogeys and turn them into pars. That's how you're going to score better. You're not going to score better by going and averaging six birdies per round. That's not how you get better. You get better by, by making less others, less doubles, less bogeys. I'm making more pars. And if that means, you know, the the mathematical play, the intelligent play, the smart play, you know, is is aiming 25 feet away from a tucked pin when you have a gap wedge in your hand. That's um, it. That's what it is. And, and, you know, if you want to shoot lower scores, those are the kind of things you need to do. You're not going to get there through more birdies. You just, yeah. you just that's not the ticket. The ticket is less of the bad numbers. I want to elaborate on this for a second, because this is really good. So I've joked before that the ideal way to play golf is in a horse race at a member guest alternate shot, because from a mindset standpoint, you're embracing the recovery for your partner. What if we did that for our own ball? Yeah. And two, even more importantly, is you are literally trying to mitigate doubles in a horse race in a member guest. Like if you just keep that thing in play and you manage where you're hitting it, your angles, the fattest parts, fattest part of the greens, you can, you can survive to the next, you hole. can survive to the next hole. And that is the goal. You don't get rewarded for making a birdie in a horse race. You're just like the double who went to a chip off. Right. But here's what I really want to hammer home. Lou is a lot of people here. Okay. I just can't make doubles, but they don't know how to make, not make doubles. They then think, in an avoidant mindset of, oh, you, you can't do that. That's what's leading your high scores. But everything we've talked about in this episode are tangible ways to not do that, right? So we talked about routine on the greens and understanding break and looking at the, the hole from both sides. You give yourself a routine that unlocks your best putting, helps with speed, and reduces three putts. Around the green, 
Get really clear on where you want to leave it, your landing spot, and let the lie dictate the shot. Approach shots, think about your dispersion. Don't aim at flags unless you have the absolute perfect number that's in the middle of the green and your dispersion can't go long or short. It's the absolute perfect yardage. Should be pretty rare. And off the tee, managing a routine that leverages the side of the hole that doesn't go where you have a tendency to hit it. Now, I will say as a former two-way misser, I'm hoping that's former, although everyone two-way misses, it's more about curvature to that side, right? That is a tough thing to play with because if you're aiming 30 yards left and you play a slice or a cut and you hook it, that's not good either. But I think the point of all this is these are tools that are, I think, a little bit different than what I expected routine talk to go at like that can help you eliminate doubles. Is that fair? Yeah, definitely. I uh, agree completely. And, and I think that's the key. Yeah, I forget the person's name, so I apologize. I'm not giving him credit. But when I posted uh, some of these average birdies, doubles, bogeys per round for just different skill levels, he said it's not about the birdies you make. It's about the doubles you don't. Um, and I think that's mm. just a phenomenal saying. I absolutely yeah. love it. I wish I could give him credit for it. I, I don't think I could look it up quickly enough. So you can go in that thread and you can find it and thank that person because I think it's a it's a great way to think about the things that are going to to tip the scale. And I would say it's it is important if you are not working with somebody on your swing, which there's a lot of golfers that are not doing that. I would encourage you to look into that. Is there there's a lot of benefit to to you know as a, a mid handicap player to to get good guidance on your game. Well, yeah, on that, see your swing, especially with swing on video, so you can understand yeah. your tendencies. On that note, that's been such a game changer for me. Is yeah. I went to see Jake Thurm in Chicago, oh, PJ yeah, yeah, Tour yeah. coach. Yep. And I he it was a very interesting question. I know we're over time. We'll get you out of here in a couple here, but. Real quick, I'll say, I've never asked been asked this question before until Jake asked me. He goes, what flight do you want to play? What type of shot do you want to hit with your driver? And I really was stumped. I was like, well, I mean, I feel like the good ones that I hit are draws. So I assume my natural flight is a draw. But I would spend all round, if you think about a traditional downswing for someone like me, a seven handicap, where the club gets outside my body, it gets a little steep, and based on what my hands are doing, sometimes I could catch it and push draw it. Yeah. But most of the time, if I'm feeling nervous or I don't have great rhythm that day, I was trying to hit a draw all day with a cut pattern. And now I'm just focused on rhythm, and I'm naturally hitting a straight to a cut shot. And my miss is maybe a straight pull, but not a hook. And that is That's just such want. a game changer in being able to feel, I'm starting to build confidence off the tee. I know where I'm aiming. And I know now what tendencies are good for me. Whereas before, it makes sense as to why I was two-way missing it all day. Because it was, I was trying to hit draws with a cut move. And I would yeah. never have known that banging my head yeah. against the wall if I didn't go see Jake in person. 
Yeah, it's really important. And I have a really cool story around that. So most higher handicap players, most of them are slicing, right? Yeah. That, that's no surprise. It's no secret. And uh, I don't know, like 18 months ago, um, I did a test with Driver. And I had over 200 people that participated in this test. And they hit a lot of golf shots over multiple days. And I had them hitting draws and fades and i set it up so they were alternating each day certain number of shots each time certain number of shots each day um, and they were giving me the results and a couple of things and i wrote about this in my newsletter and you can you can go there and and check out all the info but one of the things that was fascinating about the whole thing was a lot of people found out that they were as good or better with their non-stock shape than they were with what they said was their stock shape. And I had several dozen people reach out to me that I will say were in the, you know, most of them were in the five to 15 range. I think there were a couple that were maybe a little bit better. And they said, you know, I, I, I always played a draw because that's what good players do, right? I wanted to hit a draw because that's what good players are supposed to do. And they discovered that their matchups were better to hit cut shots. And so a number of them switched over from hitting draws to hitting cuts because they were performing better that way. And it sounds like you were in kind of a, a similar a similar boat. So you know, yeah. getting someone to give you some good professional feedback on what your matchups are and what your what your patterns are and what you can do to optimize all of that is absolute gold. And don't think that, you know, just because you, you don't need to hit a draw to be a good player. And I think a lot of 15 or 20 handicaps think that, and that's just well, not the and case. And it's such a hard shot to hit. What I would say just to close that out is when you ask people what their stock shot is, they think about the best swings they've made, yeah, right? Yeah. And it may be that high drop. They don't think, they're not thinking about how many decent swings can I make in a row? Yeah. And good. they're so, they're so scarred from hitting it right. If you're a right-handed player, but then the realization is and the data supports it, Lou, you're there. Yep. Cut. It's ironic yeah. that we start our game with slices. Then when we're able to hit a draw, it's like a sign of improvement, good things to come yet. The best players in the world, I would say, keep me honest. You're the stats guy. I'd say the majority hit cuts off the tee. Yeah. And, yeah. and I'm not a swing doctor. I think there's probably some, some reasons behind that with the way um, equipment's changed a little bit and uh, the way players are optimizing for distance, you know, you know, back in the persimmon Balada days, you know, you were players were, you know, two down one, two, three down with driver and now they're three, four, five up with driver. Right. Um, and so I, I think that, changes some of the, the physics how all of it works together i'm not a swing doctor by any stretch but i think that that plays a, a role but i think the, the the important takeaway for the listeners is you need you need to figure out what works best for you um and part of that journey should include somebody that is a professional and is well educated on the swing it can help you out with these matchups like you had um, and you made some yeah. changes yeah. Well, sir, yeah. I think to me, and you've followed my game as close as anyone over these last seven years, I would say a big shift this year recently, now that I'm starting to like string some good rounds together for the first time in a while, I realized I spent so much time on technique 
before. And my lesson with Jake, we didn't talk one position. He just looked at my pattern and he looked at my misses and he said, you want to play a draw <laughs> with this? Is that what you sold me? And I go, it's like shooting high scores. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, now I understand why you have, why you've been struggling yeah. is because you're fighting against what you're doing naturally. Dude. And I think that's so key. I would ask the listener right now, how much effort are you spending on technique versus gathering your data of your strokes gain? Like Lou suggested, understanding your routines, understanding your strategies and understanding your tendencies and your patterns. And that way you're not trying to change anything, but you're optimizing for what you do already. And there's always, you know, tightening things up and checking alignment and posture and all that stuff. But for the most part, we kind of have the swings we have. I mean, I'm just fascinated when I hear a three handicap say he has a terrible swing. Mark Mulder told us the same thing, Lou. And I think that's so important for people to hear because I always believed that the way I was going to get to a scratch was to fix my swing. And that is just now I just know with so much clarity, that is not the case at all. So if you, if you saw my swing and you're going to see it here soon enough, cause I'm going to be <laughs> doing a YouTube series with series with Mark Crossfield, which makes me really nervous. Um, I became very effective at, you know, understanding where the club was and I was able to, in a repeated fashion, you know, put the club on the ball in a way that, you know, kept it in play. I've always had pretty decent distance. And so I could get it out there and kind of keep it in play and then had a good short game. If you looked at my swing, I've had a couple of instructors tell me like the way you reroute like halfway down, it, it defies a couple of laws of physics. I have no idea how you do that and, <laughs> and get to the impact position you get to. And one of them said, you know, I saw your backswing and then paused like, you know, almost halfway in the downswing. And, and you showed this randomly to, you know, a hundred instructors, they would guess that you're like a 22 handicap. Like, I have no idea how you get from where you are to where you need to be. Now that's not optimal for me. And it's always been a struggle for me. And I've always been one of those players that has to hit 300 golf balls a day to kind of keep timing working and everything good. If I, you know, went a week without hitting golf balls, I was lost. And I started about 18 months ago working really hard at changing that so I could I could get rid of that. But you can be very effective with a swing that isn't pretty, you know, it, getting to the right impact position. I mean, at the end of the day, good, you look at all the, the tour players' impact positions. They all look the same. They look the same. You like have yeah. good low point control, have good face control, and make relatively solid contact near the middle of the face. Raymond Floyd, Jim Farrick, Matthew Wolf, right? Exactly. They all yeah. look the same. Yeah. You know? So Lou's got a repeatable move. That's the name of the game. Yeah. Club face control, uh, repeatable move. We got to get his ankle better. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So Lou, we're going to give you a chance here. We do this with every guest. Hit me. We've gone through a lot of great stuff. Either something you think we've talked about that needs to be hammered home as a takeaway for the listener or something we didn't get to cover that you think is super important that you got to leave people with. In regards to routines, strategy, how to help people get better without changing their swings. So I would say the first one, I want to, can I, can I hammer home two points? Am I sure allowed yes. to do two? All right. So the first one I would tell you to do is I would encourage you to track your stats. I would absolutely encourage you to track your stats. There's so many examples of players not understanding 
what parts of their game are good, what parts of their game are bad. And when you can focus your attention on the parts that need the most work, like going back to our 10 handicap example where, where Matt's a horrible putter, like if he knew that and he could effectively focus on the parts of his his game and then specific parts of his putting that are not good, he's going to get better a lot faster. Mm. Um, so I would encourage you to track your stats. Um, that's extremely, extremely important. In Which, my by opinion. the way, Lou, Matt's never heard that before in his life that he's a terrible putter. So this is really keeping him on right. his toes. It's, motiva- <laughs> Give it's, us- mo- it's motivation. It's motivation. Give us number two, Lou. It's our hypothetical. The other one I would tell you is, is, you know, work with a, an instructor, you know, recently there's been, and I'm not picking on this putter or this brand or whatever, but there's been a putter that's done what really well recently on tour. And it's like, you know, it's on eBay for two grand and people are going bananas over this putter. Just because I think I know what putter you're talking about. Yeah. And again, I'm not, pay, I, I play that brand of putter and I'm not picking on that brand of putter and it might be a, a great putter, but that is not going to move the needle for you. That's not the answer. Um, you know, that is not going to, I love new equipment as much as the next golfer, but you know, that is not going to take five strokes off your putting game. If you know, Matt's not going to go from putting like a 20 handicap to putting like a scratch with a new putter. He's going to get through th- there through a lot of other ways, but we see that and we want the quick fix and we go buy the equipment. Now, again, I'm not against, I'm not anti-equipment. I love new equipment, but that's not going to be the answer. What I would love to do is instead of people saying, look at that golfer, one with that new piece of equipment, I need to go buy that because it's going to help my game. Every single one of those players you see on TV that are winning and playing well, they all work with instructors, right? It's yeah. unusual for one to not have an instructor, right? We hear about it all Absolutely. the time for when somebody doesn't work with an instructor. They all have instructors. They've all had instructors for a long time. I want players to say, hmm, this guy just won. I And he has an instructor. I should get an instructor too mm, to help like with that. my game. So I, I think that's a huge takeaway here. And you saw, Evan, some huge benefit to doing that with your game. Uh, and, oh, and there's yeah. a lot of benefits. And I will say, here. I worked with Jake for years. This was the first time we had been in person. Yeah. And we got that takeaway. And so find someone local or fly to someone because here's a quick example that and Lou, my good buddy, he's probably shoots high nineties in the hundreds. He never took a lesson. He's been playing for seven years. He went up and saw my brother who just got into the golf business. And a lot of the lesson they worked on putting, he's like, he's in putt solid. He's got a routine around the greens now. And we played the day after and he was like a whole new guy. And like, he didn't think a lot of the lesson would be putting. He thought he was going to be working on, a backswing in, in yeah. his long game, but it was just a whole new level of confidence. So it's just echoing with what you're saying, like make the leap, you know? Yeah. I, yeah. I, I think that's an important piece. And that's something that a lot of golfers are not doing. They've never taken lessons or they take one lesson and they go away. I get that, you know, it can be, it can be, you know, a budgetary question, you know, you know how many sure. lessons you can fit in. I, I completely understand that. But if it's something that, you know, fits within your budget, um, I would tell you to allocate dollars to that and don't expect to come away with, you know, a completely transformed game after one lesson or, or a, you know, a pack of three. I would encourage you to find a long-term relationship with a coach and continue to see them on a, on a you know, regular basis, whatever that means for you and work hard at that. And, and you'll see some huge changes. I, I was working with somebody online and I still work with him 
Jason Giesbrecht. He's based out of Canada. We work remotely and he's, he's worked with me since December of what I guess, 2021, December of 2021 is when we started. And if you looked at my before and after, not only from my numbers, which is the most important thing, but how much more functional my swing is compared to what it used to be. It's incredible. That did not happen after lesson one. That happened right. after a lot of work and a lot of check-ins mm. and a lot of let's continue to, you know, kind of, kind of make this change and turn this ship. Long-term and yeah, thinking. quick yeah. point from me to close this loop before we let you go is it took me about two months to get comfortable trying to hit a cut yeah. off the tee. And I could have easily gone to that next round and been like, no, look, I hit a good one with a draw. I'm a draw guy. What's Jake talking about? But I kept, I gave myself grace. I was like, look, I've been trying to play a draw for 18 years. It's going to take a little time. Right. And now I'm finally starting to it's it's finally starting to feel a little bit normal. So, Lou, I know we took a lot of time. Thank you so much. Yeah. At Lou Stagner, one awesome. of my favorite, all of our favorite follows on Twitter, Lou Stagner Great newsletter. Thank you. Back it out podcast. Co-guest co-host as well. Co-host. So, yeah. With Mark Crossfield and PJ yeah. player, Mr. Greg Chalmers. So, yeah, check them out. Thank you. As always, Lou, this is a pleasure. We'd love to have you back. Maybe in 11 months, maybe hopefully sooner <laughs> next time. It was great. I always enjoy talking with you guys. So thanks for having me on again. And I'm happy to hear that uh, your game is uh, pretty soon. Evan, you're going to be beating Matt out there if you keep it up. Wow. I mean, Matt it's tells not, me I've got great hands. It's so. something to aspire for. You know, <laughs> Matt did not like that comment. <laughs> Matt and I, I mean, I, I can't pot. Evan's on my heels. <laughs> <laughs> One day, maybe on YouTube, I'll beat Matt. There we go. That'd be awesome. I'd pay to watch that one. Yeah. Well, thank you, Lou. Have a great rest of your night. And keep us posted on that ankle and the simulator. A lot of great stuff coming. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Great to see you. All right. See you, Lou. Hey, guys. This is Evan. Real quick before you hop off the train, I got something for you. It's called The Train of Thought. It's our new email newsletter. Would you like to get one nugget, insight, or thought that we're pondering every week that could help keep you sharp and help your mental game? Go to thepartrain.com and subscribe to the Train of Thought newsletter today. It's really the best way to enjoy the ride. See you guys.